The theme that I wanted to continue exploring is this question that came up a couple of months ago about whether or not Auckland Insight is a secular group or not. And those of you who were there two months ago, you might remember that although we started with that question, we didn't really come up with any answers. And that wasn't really the point because uh, I know... Early on in my practice, when I would come to groups like these and I'd have all these questions and people would sort of, from my perspective back then, waffle on and talk around the thing and never give me an actual effing answer. And I would get so frustrated and think, what's wrong with these people? Like, why don't they even know what they're talking about? And why, when are they going to, are they like deliberately hiding some nugget of truth from me because I'm not worthy or something and so I know that it can be very frustrating it took me quite a few years to realize that actually asking the questions in many ways is the practice and that I've come actually to be more and more suspicious of people who say that they have the truth or that they know the answers because I think, as many of you know, the more we explore, the more we start to realize there is so much more to this than I thought. And it's almost a paradox, but it feels like the more we explore, the more there is to explore. So, and that's the spirit that I really wanted to uh, explore this question with, to continue exploring this question with tonight. I'm going to have to use my glasses. Because the Buddha himself was very clear that clinging to views and opinions is actually the opposite of what this path is about. And that was one of the paradoxes I encountered when I started reading about um, well, what is meant by secular Buddhism, that I instantly felt like I came into contact with what the Buddhist sometimes talks about as a tangle of views, a thicket of views, a wilderness of views. And this topic of secular Buddhism seems to bring up this kind of thicket of views. And yet on another level, the practice is not about um, strengthening views and opinions. So this is a, a quote from the suttas, from the discourses that I think really illuminates how this tendency to cling on to ideas has been around for a very long time. So there was a time when there were a number of recluses and Brahmins, wanderers of various sects who were living around Savati in India. And they were of various views, of various beliefs, of various opinions, and they relied for their support on their various views saying, only this is true, any other view is false. So they lived quarrelsome, disputatious and wrangling, wounding each other with verbal darts, saying, the Dharma, the teachings is like this, the Dharma is not like that, the Dharma is not like this, the Dharma is like that. Some spiritual practitioners, so-called, are deeply attached to their own views. People who only see one side of things engage in quarrels and disputes. 
So to me, it's very telling that the Buddha used the word so-called spiritual practitioners. In other words, getting caught up in disputes about Dharma is seriously missing the point. And on the other hand, this exploring this question of secularity can be a very powerful way of shedding light on our existing views and opinions, our views, opinions and constructs and worldviews. So in this way, we can see it actually as a practice of mindfulness of the mind, which, as many of you know, is one of these four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, or the four domains of attention. So in this spirit, then, I'd like to begin by recapping where we got to last time. And for me, what quickly became apparent was that this word secular means many different things to different people. It's one of those words that gets thrown around a lot, but without really being defined. So I have leaned fairly heavily on the essay by Akinchino, who's a German scholar, meditation teacher, ex-monk, and has a very keen interest in philosophy. And last year I had an opportunity to assist a retreat taught by him, Bhikkhu Analio, and Shaila Catherine, which I have to say was pretty daunting because uh, those are three pretty phenomenal intellects and it made for some very interesting debates around the lunch table every day. So Akinchino acknowledges that this term secular is both charged or loaded and diffuse, not very well defined. So he made his own efforts to try and um, tease apart what people mean by this term. He said sometimes it's an antonym or an opposite for orthodox. In other words, it means liberal, um, tolerant, or even pluralistic. Sometimes it means not bound by tradition. Definitely it means not fundamentalist. And quite literally, it means of this century. So the word seculum is a Latin word that secular comes from, of this century. So relevant to these times. It's sometimes defined as meaning non-monastic, not part of a clergy or a church. It's other times it means not of one unified view of the world. It's often referred to as um, being concerned with this world and not metaphysical or supernatural. It's often means non-religious or worldly, as in the sense of opposed to the sacred. So last time I was here, we talked about how this group is clearly secular in that it's not um, it's not monastic, it's not part of a clergy or a church, none of us are ordained, which means that it has more freedom to, in some ways, we're not bound by tradition, which you could say does make it of this century. It's more relevant to our contemporary lives and our current day challenges, perhaps. But what I didn't talk about so much last time were the last three of those definitions, secular as non-metaphysical, as non-religious, and as worldly uh, in the sense of opposed to the sacred. And particularly when it comes to that last duality of um, 
worldly versus sacred, we really can start to touch into some deeply held personal and societal taboos. So in our current dominant culture, we tend to put a lot of faith, whether we're conscious of it or not, in um, scientific materialism as opposed to religion, which in that duality is seen to involve blind belief. Now I'll come back to that perception of religion in a moment, but just to say that here's a typical quote that I think captures this duality. Scientific materialism is the belief that physical reality, as, a ma as made available to the natural sciences, is all that truly exists. It's clear that there's little room for religion in this philosophical system, since religion involves faith in unseen and untestable entities. And again, that's a fairly narrow definition of religion that I'm not sure applies to Buddhism as a religion. But still, the point is clear that with scientific materialism, it's this belief that physical reality is all that truly exists. So, this often, um, oh, I wanted to say one thing about uh, following on from that, the author David Bailey says, if we fully accept scientific materialism, we would also have to discard art, literature, music, and many other fields of human endeavor that are essential aspects of our modern world. More importantly, we need to ask, what is the status of scientific materialism itself under this worldview? Because if faith in God requires independent scientific confirmation, what about the colossal faith our new atheists place in science itself? Exactly what are the independent scientific experiments, we might ask, that could provide evidence for the hypothesis that all true knowledge must be based on the paradigm of scientific inquiry. If faith requires independent confirmation, what is the independent method of demonstrating that their own faith in the all-encompassing cognitional scope of science is reasonable? So this is just maybe a convoluted way of pointing to the fact that many of us do have this kind of unseen assumption that scientific, modern, rational, and so on is uh, is real, and anything that's not that is somehow superstitious or religious or uh, less than real. And so th I think that's an interesting point to start with, because one of Akinchino's major concerns about the secularizing of the Dharma um, his concern is that it's in some ways reducing the Dharma to what he calls, quote, reasonable Buddhism, which he says uh, subjects the tenets of Buddhist teaching to whatever trends of thinking currently claim the prerogative interpretation and what is factual, valid, normal, and healthy. So it backs the Dharma with whatever findings in the sciences it comes across rationalism, logical positivism, behavioral neuroscience, clinical psychology, and so on. The basic message is this. If we can't prove it by measuring it, then it's not really happening. And here we see science not as an application of methodological scientific practice, 
but science is an ideology and a religious substitute. And in all of this, what I'm wanting to uh, keep checking is that I think we do tend to base our whole framing of the world in terms of dualities and to assume that if one is right, the other one must be wrong. And it's very hard to step out of that inherent tendency. So even as I'm offering these critiques of science, you might be thinking, oh, well, then she's trying to prove that religion is more valid. (laughs) So straight away we find ourselves falling into one or the other. And that's really partly what I'm wanting to draw attention to by when we go to one side, we start to validate the other side and vice versa. And rather than doing that, I want to follow the lead of the Buddha who actually sidesteps this whole process by um, actively encouraging us not to take anything on faith or to practice from blind belief. So whether it's blind belief in science or religion or metaphysics or new age, whatever, doesn't matter. His invitation was always to inquire for ourselves in our own lives, to test things in our own experience and to see if they're true. So many of you may be familiar with the Kalama Sutta. Do you know that one? The teaching he gave to the Kalama um, people of Kesaputta? No? Yes? One or two people? It's um, become very popular in Western um, Dharma circles because it um, really is this encouragement to try the practice for yourself. And the context, I think, is interesting because it happened at a time in the Buddha's lifetime in India. There were all kinds of spiritual seekers traveling from town to town offering their teachings. So that quote that I gave you earlier where he talked about people wrangling verbally and wounding each other with verbal darts, that came in the context of these different groups of people complaining saying that their way of seeing things was true. And that's how people made their living. They got followers and people supported them by um, professing their truths. And this group of people who were living in Kesaputta had had a whole series of these different teachers coming through and each one, of course, said what we're offering is true, what the other guys were saying was rubbish, you know, support us, not them kind of thing. And I think there's a parallel here, particularly with the Internet these days where so many different teachings are available and there is this tendency to promote and to say, well, our course is better than that course and we have the streamlined version or the stripped-down version or the more intense version or the more sexed-up version or whatever it might be. There's this, there's all these competing um teachings and theories and teachers trying to grab our attention. So how do we know what's true? So the Kalamas of Kesaputta went to the Buddha and they said to him, there are some monks and Brahmins, venerable sir, who visit Kesaputta. They expound and explain only their own doctrines. The doctrines of others they despise, revile and pull to pieces. Some other monks and Brahmins too, venerable sir, come to Kesaputta. 
They also expound and explain their own doctrines. The doctrines of others they despise, revile and pull to pieces. Venerable Sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning them. Which of these reverend monks and Brahmins spoke the truth, and which falsehood? So I find it fascinating that even 2,600 years ago, people were confused about how to navigate all of these competing views and opinions. And the Buddha's response is just so practical. He says, Now, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or even by the thought, this one is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So that's, he's pointing to all the different ways that we traditionally decide that we agree with something, or that person has charisma, or this, that's a 2000 year old tradition, or it says it in a scripture, or it makes sense to us on some vague intuitive level, or it sounds like common sense. He's saying, don't trust any of that. Don't even trust the Buddha speaking as your teacher. Try out what I'm saying in the context of your own life. And then, if you find it leads to happiness and welfare, only then should you do it. So he wasn't interested in getting followers. He wasn't interested in creating a mass movement or being supported. He wanted people to take on what he said, and if they found it useful, use it. And if they didn't, did not. You know, he was very open like that. There's one other piece about that quote that I think is often overlooked. As I said, it's um, often quoted in terms of the Western insight tradition because it, it seems to be so kind of self-empowering or you know, gives our, ourselves our own authority. But there is a phrase in there that says, um, when you know these qualities are blameless and praised by the wise, so it's not only about our own judgment. And I think that's a very important safeguard because don't know about you, but I know for myself there's been times when I've really managed to convince myself that something was the right thing to do and then with hindsight realized it definitely wasn't. And so, you know, we're beginners. We're none of us are fully enlightened beings, so... Often we do need to have a sense of another perspective to be able to think, well, is this something that other people, people whose opinions and perspectives I respect, would they see this in the same way that I'm seeing it right now? And I think this points to the need for sangha, for community. As most of you, many of you said in the beginning that being able to connect with people who share similar views and who also are wanting to live more skillfully. This is a very powerful resource where we can come and check and connect and have some sense of 
Are we trying to live with more wisdom and compassion? So in this way, I see Auckland Insight as a very powerful support for our secular dharma. And I also think that Sangha or community has um, so far in the development of insight in the West been a little bit under uh, emphasized or underdeveloped and that's starting to change now. But that's one reason why last time I read this quote from David Brazier, um, who I think in some ways similar to Akinjano, shares this concern that the way the Dharma has been presented and is being secularized potentially undercuts its more radical aspects and can actually make it into something that supports the status quo rather than challenges it. So I think it's worth reading his um, his quote again. He's talking about how um, a decontextualized dharma that's really taken out of the uh, its original setting can, he says, highlight the private subject, in other words, the individual, the individual in a manner that is quite in line with the alienated, isolated individual that is the primary model of the person in our capitalistic society. Is this really what we want, he asks. It also makes Buddhism into a set of commodities that can be purchased and reduces practitioners to economic units. And this is particularly true as the dana model or the koha model of this practice in some settings is being eroded. Uh, I think it really does make the Buddha, Buddhism into a set of commodities that can be purchased. And he says, this is dharma that reinforces rather than challenges many tendencies in Western societies that are anything but freeing. It is not to use the words of the Buddha, going against the stream of our conditioning at all. It is actually quite consistent with some of the deep currents that shape our modern alienated consciousness. Lack of a coherent and meaningful community life and way of relating to others is arguably the cause of much of the suffering that people seek to resolve in Buddhism. If what they get instead is a do-it-yourself, on-yourself, by-yourself, for-yourself, at-a-price technique, this is not going to do the trick, even if it does provide some palliative satisfaction. Ultimately, Buddhism flourishes through an other-centered rather than a self-centered orientation towards life. So from this perspective, I think creating sanghas like Auckland Insight is actually quite a radical thing to do because it is an opportunity to work against the stream of our self-centered conditioning. And as most of us know, I think it's relatively easy to sit in silence and to practice on the cushion at home alone. But when we come into contact with others in our relationships, that's often where we really get the grist for the mill, so to speak. So this brings me to another point in Akinchino's critique of the secularizing of the Dharma. And I'd like to uh, take a little bit of time just to explore what he sees as the potential downside of this secularizing process, 
which, as he says, has already been going on for quite a while. He says the question is not whether but how and to what purpose. How honest are we about the forces that are driving this secularizing movement? How self-critical are we of our own history and our cultural biases? How aware are we of the teaching's full potential? How careful in our interpretations of tradition and how clear of what is at stake? So what he's pointing to there is this tendency to to not be very informed about the full depth and potential and the goals of this practice and remembering that ignorance is one of those three root energies that keep us caught in suffering asking these questions is a very powerful way to keep freeing ourselves from ignorance it's not easy to be aware of our own cultural and uh, historical biases because pretty much by definition, a bias is something that's inbuilt and it's hard to see. So a very significant part of this practice is actually being willing to be challenged, to try to bring awareness to our blind spots, and where necessary, to let go of sometimes very deeply held conditioning, conditioning that keeps us comfortable in our existing worldviews. And not doing that is one of the potential pitfalls that Akinchino sees with the secularizing of the Dharma. And so he's perhaps, he's an academics, uh, partly an academic, so he's, I think at times, deliberately provocative in the way he uh, uses language. But he points to what he calls um, the development of a convenient and easy Buddhism the wellness school that is utterly unthreatening to existing Western values, beliefs, and sensitivities. It's inoffensive, it doesn't demand effort, difficult changes, hard thinking, or anything challenging. And then he says, he talks about this as the bambification of the Dharma, which I think is Bambi as in, you know, the Disney Bambi, where he's talks about um, a nice Buddhism, the bambification of the Dharma, and the tenor is we don't need to study difficult texts or make strenuous efforts or challenge or our views or give up on anything. Let's just all be kind and nice and a little bit more mindful. And I, you know, as I say, he's being provocative, but I do have a sense, even in the relatively short time that I've been teaching, that there is a movement away from you know, not making too much effort and um, it's all about self-care and self-care often is misunderstood or mispresented as actually being self-indulgence. And these days people coming on retreats are sometimes looking for more like a, a sort of a health spa kind of experience and they would rather do their coloring books and go for nice long walks and send a few texts a few times a day and just, you know, chill out and that kind of thing. And it's absolutely true that most of us live in contexts where a lot of the time we are close to burnout, exhausted and so on. And it may well be that that would be a very healthy thing to do. 
that coming on an insight meditation retreat to do it is not necessarily the appropriate place. If that's really what's needed, then going to some kind of, um, I don't know, a resort rather than a retreat is probably uh, a better option. Because we really need to be clear about the overall purpose and goal of insight retreat practice. And I think that that's sometimes what's getting lost because everything's just sort of mushed together in this, oh, you know, meditation, it's good for you. And people aren't necessarily informed or clear about the purpose of the practice. So a few years ago, there was a young guy who came on one of my retreats and at the end he said, oh, I'm so impressed that Buddhism has taken all the cutting-edge practices of psychology and folded them into the tradition. <laughs> I said, oh, actually, it's the other way around. And he had no idea. And of course not. Why would he? He was of a generation that hasn't grown up with um, the Dharma and understood that the Dharma is actually what has um, traditionally underpinned contemporary mindfulness and a lot of the psychology techniques that are practiced these days. So just a couple more um, couple more um, thoughts about Akinchino's concerns where he talks about the tendency of secular Buddhism to deny as invalid what might be called super mundane experiences to deny what's beyond our own personal experience. And he sees this as coming from a fear of religious dogmatism, which, you know, in some ways may be justified, but it's also very easy to metaphorically throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think this is what happens when we don't distinguish between genuine personal experiences in which he says, I may feel awed, and connected to something beyond my self-construct, or even even completely other, something which is truly deeply transforming. So that's on one hand, and on the other is a supernatural belief. And it seems to be human nature that we often do want to deny the truth of other people's experiences if we ourselves haven't had those same experiences. And again, I see that as happening more and more as people are less informed, have maybe explored less of the practice, um, perhaps going into the more easy, comfortable um, side of it. I use the analogy of perhaps it's like going to a travel agent. We want to go on holiday somewhere and we go to a travel agent and say, well, where could I go for an interesting holiday? And they say, well, Hamilton's great, and you can get a bus to Hamilton. And you're a bit like, mm, yeah, is there anything else? And they're like, well, Hamilton's fantastic. You'll really like it. Well, I was wondering if I could fly somewhere. Fly? Are you out of your mind? Like, why won't you just go on a bus to Hamilton? And sometimes I hear people <laughs> saying, you know, almost like that. It's denying that there's anything... Not even that there's any other city than Hamilton, but that there are entire other countries that the travel agent clearly hasn't been to and so is kind of consciously or unconsciously denying that they even exist. And that's a fairly crude analogy for what I see happening, but I hope that you, you get the point that um, this is one of the dangers, I think, when we don't really 
take the time to explore the full depth and breadth of what this practice is about. So Akinchino makes a similar point, um, also a fairly mundane example, where he talks about if he, um, he says, if I have a good nose and I actually can smell if somebody has cut the bread on the onion board, then to the guy who doesn't have a good nose, this may seem an extrasensory or supernatural experience. To me, it's not. It just smells of onion. I can't prove how I know, but I do know it. It's the old story of the turtle telling the fish about his visit to dry land, his walk, the gentle breezes, the evening sun, the scent of the blossoming trees, and the fish concluding that anything that's not wet, cool and liquid is unthinkable and that dry land and breezes and walks under blossoming trees are mere fantasies. So how do we avoid falling into this trap of consciously or unconsciously denying the possibilities of experiences that might so far be outside our own direct understanding? And I think here to some extent some faith or trust is required. I think as an antidote to feel-good dharma, I think we do need to keep the overall goal of the path in mind. This is the goal of nibbana, also known as liberation or freedom, awakening, enlightenment. And I've spoken about this quite a lot in other talks, so I'm not going to go into too much detail now. But just to acknowledge that you know, we can hear terms like nibbana or enlightenment and they might sound very lofty or remote or abstract, uh, pretty far from our own experience. But what they're pointing to can actually be experienced in moments whenever the heart and the mind are free from the afflictive energies of greed and hatred and ignorance. And I'm pretty confident that every one of us here has had some taste of that. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep coming back. We have some sense, even if we haven't framed it to ourselves, that those were moments of nibbana. We have some understanding of what it might be like for the heart-mind to be free from compulsion, aversion, delusion, Otherwise, we probably wouldn't continue exploring the path. And these are moments of what Ajahn Buddha Dasa calls temporary nibbana. And over time, as we continue practicing, those moments, fleeting as they may be, start to become more predominant. They start to join together and to become more and more the default setting of the heart and mind. And as this happens, we experience less of the afflictive states and ease, happiness, peace become more and more just how we are in the world. So in this respect, I hope that Auckland Insight is not a secular group in that it will be a resource to help all of us to keep walking this path together so that all of us can experience more and more of the full empowering and liberating truth that the Buddha has offered for us. So that was a bit of a download, sorry. And I really wanted to um, 
leave time to hear any thoughts, comments, questions, anything you'd like to share in relation to any of that. And thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.